netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hello and welcome to this in our next continuing conversational set of podcasts where we're talking to professionals around the industry about topics that are of enormous interest without necessarily having uh, any particular agenda to push. Um, Today I'm joined by Andrew Glasner. Andrew is somebody that I first ran into um, uh, as an expert in deep learning and machine learning at a SIDGRAPH um, a couple of years ago, I think it was in Vancouver. And uh, I then, of course, got to know him uh, also at uh, FMX, where he did uh, a series of talks and masterclasses. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, interview him several times and just really gained an enormous amount of um, respect for his understanding of deep learning and machine learning. Now, as you know, I basically uh, am totally a believer that this sort of uh, AI machine learning stuff is going to be something that is a valuable part of the toolbox. And obviously I'm not alone. It's uh, exploding right, left and center. Um, well, Andrew Glasner, Dr. Andrew Glasner is actually a senior research scientist at Weta Digital. Um, and he's basically at Weta helping them uh, understand and incorporate deep learning with artists. But also, as I say, he's been a technical papers chair for SIDGRAPH 94 um, a founding editor of the Journal of Computer Graphics Tools, and an editor-in-chief at uh, ACM Transaction on Graphics. So he's a really knowledgeable and incredibly nice guy. Uh, anyway, Andrew and I thought we'd just discuss the topics that are currently happening uh, in AI. As it happens, Andrew's got a book that it's just come out, and uh, you'll hear us refer to that. It's um, just a really good sort of non... Well, it's technical, but it's not full of maths, but similarly, or, or code for that matter. But similarly, it's not simplistic. Um, and I can honestly say that if you were to uh, go through that book and learn it, you would have an incredibly good understanding of all the major areas of uh, supervised, unsupervised learning, GANs and stuff, all the, the hot topics in, in basically computer graphics and visual effects. But again, without necessarily uh, having to hit any real maths or having to hit any real code. That being said, of course, if you were interested in doing more in that area, this would be a great foundation text. So recommend Andrew's book, um, but we're not uh, primarily on the podcast talking about the book. We just wanted to have an idea of what some of the big uh, issues were in machine learning from a visual effects uh, point of view. So great guy and incredibly enthusiastic to talk to him. So Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Mike. Very happy to be here. So I got to ask you, like, I mean, I've been aware of the stuff that you've been doing, but like, where did you learn all of the stuff that you've learned about uh, machine learning and stuff? Like, what's the, like, how did you get to be so good at this stuff? <laughs> uh, um, so I am, in most things, an autodidact. I teach myself what I get interested in. And that's what happened with machine learning. Um, so some number of years ago, I was reading some newspaper articles, and one of them was about how deep learning is this wonderful thing, and it's going to be great and change the world. And another article talked about, it's this scary, awful thing that's going to destroy the world. And I thought, you know, who do I trust? And I realized I have technical chops. I can make my own decision if I learn what this stuff is about. So I embarked on a journey of self-education. 
So a second, we're going to turn our attention to kind of problems in visual effects and trends and things that are happening. But before we do that, I should point out um, that, in fact, for those of us that want to learn, you've published a book, uh, and not only a book, it's a cracker of a book um, on deep learning. So while I, I, we may refer to it, I mean, obviously, before we go any further, I just want to acknowledge, because this book to me um, has a direct line from when I first heard you talk formally at SIDGRAPH in, I'm going to say Vancouver, but I remember going into a very, very large room and sitting there and I knew that I wanted to learn more about uh, this and you were giving a, you know, a half day course. I think it was a half day course. Anyway, so I sat in there thinking, yeah, you know, a little skeptical, you know, it's either going to be too mathematical, I'm not going to understand it, or it's going to be too simple and I'm going to be bored out of my skull. And yeah. the room like everybody was transfixed and glued. It was like everybody was going, finally, someone can explain something that is complicated enough that I understand it and can use it, but and uh, but not so complicated that I need a PhD in pure maths to even get into it. Because I think some of this stuff does feel a bit like it's, um, like the, the, the bar to even get to understand what I'm looking at is so high that it defeats me. And that conference talk with SIGGRAPH and this book don't do that. I mean, I just want to applaud you for doing this because it's a cracker of a book. Thank you. That was my intent. Um, the book has no math, really. There's you know, a couple of multiplies and there's no code. The, 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 most of this stuff is not that hard. And if you look at it from sort of basic principles, what's going on and what are we trying to do? Yeah, you know, it was invented by smart people and it can be explained to smart people. And you can do it with all of that math. And the math is accurate and it gives you all kinds of details, but you don't have to do it that way. I liken it to a photographer using a camera, which has all those automatic settings. And as long as you know kind of what the autofocus is going to do and the auto white balance is going to do, you can work with the camera and take the pictures you want. So by knowing how the automatic tools work, you are more flexible in working with the camera and letting it help you do your work. So let's discuss some of the, the sort of problems in the space of visual effects and, uh, and you know, these sort of narrative digital things and see if you can sort of point to which tools you think are, are good for what. Um, I guess the thing that struck me, you know, that moment where I go, oh my God, it was when I saw how well computer vision was managing to identify things in imagery, like basically hey, this is a picture of a guy on a bike. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's what type of a problem for you? Uh, so that's, that's often called either classification or segmentation. And, and for a long time, you know, people considered that an impossible problem. It was like, oh, you know, computers can send a man to the moon, but we can't tell a picture of a cat from a cow. and now it's really easy to tell a cat from a cow. Um, so classification is just, uh, we often think of it as sort of a whole picture thing. What does this a picture of? And segmentation says, let's break up the picture into its component pieces and label each of those. So we have a cat in the foreground and a chair in the background and a wall in the background, and you can 
split up the picture. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there are applications for this. Um, uh, we were talking to the guys uh, um, uh, around some work that they were doing for uh, a film and they were talking about running even their own training data, which is something we'll get to later, but they were like using this technique to find the best footage that they had to use for the training data. It was like, even before they did their normal machine learning type stuff and, and other things, they were, you know, uh, going through these massive databases to pull out the best stuff that they wanted. And as you said, it's like uh, a huge problem. If I've got a database of imagery, just finding things that are relevant. Right. But nowadays we kind of know about that a bit, I guess, from, you know, Hey, Google, or Apple, find me pictures of me or my wife in my uh, photo library. Is that the same tech? Because the other big problem for visual effects is uh, inside the frame, not just finding me or my wife, but actually being able to isolate me or my wife in the frame, because that is the holy grail of having to sort of get rid of roto, or at least get rid of an obvious green screen slash roto combo. Um, is that the same underlying deep learning kind of a tech that you were just describing? Well, what I was describing were categories, and there are lots of algorithms in each of those categories. And the algorithms have different strengths and weaknesses. And so right now, we don't really have the holy grail of the problem you're describing. We don't have the, you know, here's here's something in front of a green screen. Take out the green screen. I'll, I'll come back from lunch and you'll be done. Um, we have different algorithms that are good at different parts of doing that. And Sometimes they can remove people, but sometimes they can't. So it's very much right now a patchwork quilt of, well, we'll use this for this problem and we'll use that for that problem. And a, a skilled artist will choose their tools to match the specific problem they're trying to solve. And for some of these everyday problems, we still don't have really good tools. In the particular case of green screen or other roto, I think the, the difficult problem that machine learning faces is that what you want is not so much the Kia as the roto tool. Let me explain what I mean by that. Like in the Kia example, you're basically uh, getting an image processing tool that identifies in or out or some gradient between the two. But what you really want out of the roto tool is a user definable shape that says, hey, I'd, I'd like to adjust the shape here and, and that's what, of course, we do with splines. And so yeah. what we really want is less the Kia and more the Roto tool, isn't it? And that's where it gets particularly complex to come up with a generalized solution. Yeah, a lot of these algorithms right now are pixel-based, not spline-based. And yeah. so they're going to make their decision, you know, on a pixel-by-pixel -pixel basis. And then you could try to fit a spline to, you know, the, the boundary where where the system says, well, that's one thing, and that's a different thing. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are algorithms that try to fit splines, but most of the image stuff is pixel-based. Yeah, I mean, if we look at what happens in Zoom, for example, you can, uh, you know, say, put a background in behind me and it'll find my head and shoulders kind of, and kind of produce a uh, yeah, yeah. knee in front of a thing. <laughs> the trouble with that is it's not very good, Certainly, it's totally appallingly bad for visual effects work. Um, NVIDIA's got a better one. NVIDIA has a better system of uh, using machine learning and isolating somebody from the background. It's still not perfect uh, by any means, but it's 
it's definitely a a non-chroma-based Kia that is significantly better than the one that most people are familiar with in Zoom. But um, I think the Foundry and other people are looking at trying to crack the problem. And certainly it would be a huge problem to solve to be able to produce a spline-based solution to uh, what's going on. And I guess it falls into some of the same problems that that uh, I would say like optical flow falls in, completely different technology, but optical flow always had the problem. It's a chicken and egg problem, right? If you knew what the object was, you could could find it between frames for optical flow. And if you could find it between frames, you could know what the objects were. And um, it's, uh, it's so much the case that we try and anthropomorphize this stuff when we're looking at it. Do you ever find that when you're, when you're looking at these problems that, especially when you're looking at uh, problems that we're trying to solve around people, you kind of your brain says it's obviously the person, right? Because I've got neurons that are like specifically designed for finding faces and you know, like recognizing forms of people, and yet uh, the computer is just seeing it as a mathematical problem. It's a statistical approach, effectively, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly a statistical approach, and yes, all the time. You look at this thing, you go, you stupid machine, that's clearly a hand. What's the matter with you? Um, but it it doesn't know what a hand looks like. It just has this statistical model of, of body parts and things. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up quality because that is a recurring problem. In visual effects, we need really high quality. And a lot of these algorithms are very good at pretty good solution, but that's not acceptable in the effects industry. We need super high quality results. And that can often be very hard to adapt algorithms that are out there to make them give us this kind of high quality result. That's, that's a challenge. Yeah. I guess the other thing is how much we're happy with a plausible solution and how much we need a perfect solution. Because a lot of uh, AI solutions generally in, in the visual space tend to be, I'm going to infer something that I think is plausible. Um, that's completely different to, I'm going to give you exactly what it is. Now, that being said, visual effects is a big fake, right? I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it's just, it's, it's an interesting line, isn't it? Sometimes we want the mathematically accurate. Sometimes we just want something that looks yeah, that looks believable. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things about these algorithms is that they are great at hallucinating new information. So, you know, you give them an, uh, a plate and you say, I want you to remove this person. And the algorithm can hallucinate what it thinks is probably behind them. And we may know what's behind them. And then we can say, well, computer, you're wrong. And maybe we care if it's wrong or maybe we don't. Or maybe we don't even know what was behind them because nobody bothered to take a reference photo. You know, ah, all right, fine, whatever you made up, as long as it's consistent from frame to frame and it looks like it belongs. Yeah, that looks like part of the wall. Good enough. Yeah, because uh, as much as I don't want my eye to go to it because it looks odd, I don't want it to have temporal artifacts that flicker because, again, that's just the a no-no in visual effects. So yeah, we do need that temporal consistency often. That's right. uh, super right. important. So one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about uh, this area that we should probably just clarify for people, like, so when somebody says, well, I, I don't think, I think it's too broad to discuss AI. Let's jump down a level and say machine learning and deep learning. Let's just clarify the difference between those two for a second, just for people. Like what, are, what why is something 
not like they're not interchangeable terms. How, how do you define them as being different? It's it's a uh, difference in basically how the algorithm is set up. So, and there's no hard and fast rule here. There's no court of law that says this is machine learning, this is deep learning. But in general, machine learning means you designed an algorithm that does what you want it to do. You've written down some equations, you've written down uh, the steps involved, and you write the code and you say go. And if it doesn't do what you want, you debug your code because it's not functioning properly. Deep learning systems, again, speaking very generally, are very general purpose machines. They are, they are statistical learning machines. So you build this thing in such a way that you give it lots of examples of whatever it is you want it to learn how to do. And it learns the statistics that allow it to give you the answers you want. And if it doesn't do that well, you don't know really why, because it's learning its own statistics in its own way. And all you can do is tinker with it. You, you make it a little bigger, you make it a little smaller, you, you change you know, some of the internal parameters, and you hope that you can kind of guide it into learning. And sometimes it never will, and you give up, and you make a new deep learning algorithm, and you see if that one will work better. And that happens all the time. Or, or it only works up to a certain point, and then it's very hard to make it work better. And because it's very complicated and it's learning its own statistics rather than the statistics we designed it to learn, we don't know where it's going wrong. So, and one other thing to say is that uh, sometimes people think that the word deep in deep learning means a deep understanding, a thoughtful, <laughs> introspective, uh, you know, oh, he's a deep thinker. And it's not that at all. It's an accident of how people drew the pictures in the early days. Um, they drew I like, I like how you say in the, in the early days, right? Because the drawings are... <laughs> <laughs> Because not only is it that they have, they drew the, I know what you're about to say, right? You're about to say like that, you know, you draw a, a network diagram basically where it sort of goes from top to bottom and yeah. you've got multiple yeah. layers. So that's deep. Yeah. But then everybody stopped drawing them that way and started drawing them sideways. And so yeah. the poor person coming in today goes, what's deep? What? What? Not only is it like not drawn, but there's just no clue as to what's being referred to. But uh, yeah, I wish we called it wide learning. <laughs> Wide learning, yeah, that would be good, yeah, yeah, and and obviously, uh, in in intertwined with that concept is the concept of a neural network, right? The idea of a network diagram, a neural network diagram. So, do you want to flesh that out with? Because I think that's where you're about to go, right? Discussing a neural network. Sure. So, a, a the simplest kind of neural network is made up of tiny little bits of um, basically addition and multiplication that we call neurons. And it's, it's, a, it's a crime to call them neurons. It's just wrong. Um, uh, the, one, the, the example that you used in, uh, in a talk once was it, it is to call them neurons is to call uh, uh, a toothpick a forest. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was. That was a great example. Yeah, there's some relationship between the two, but we're not presuming that a toothpick is a good substitute for a, for a deciduous 100-year-old uh, tree. 
Perfect. Yes, exactly. So, so these things we call neurons that, you know, we just shouldn't, (laughs) we're stuck with that because um, they're really the same thing that was, that was come up with uh, decades ago when um, some folks tried to boil down this enormously complicated thing that is a neuron, right? It's a nerve cell in our body. And we have many different kinds of neurons and they're fabulously complicated. We still don't know really everything about how they work. But someone said, well, let's take this neuron and turn it into the simplest little thing. They say, okay, it'll be a thing that, that, that adds up some numbers and then decides if the sum is greater than zero or not. That will be our neuron. Now, if you take that little thing and you take its output and you feed it as the input to another neuron to let the next neuron sum up the output of the first one, then you've built yourself a network of these things. And the the one extra little bit we have to add to make it a fully fledged neural network is that as the, let's, let's, let's sort of return to the brain for a moment. As a signal moves its way through all the wet goop in your brain from from the end of one neuron to the let's say let's just call it the start of the next neuron it's got to make its way through all this stuff in your brain and so it might the the information might get weakened right if it's a little molecule if it's a little burst of some neurotransmitter as it works its way from one place to the next it might lose a little bit of stuff when it hits the next neuron it might not get fully absorbed and so you can lose a little bit of the the information coming out of one neuron before it gets to the next one. And the analogy is not perfect, but you could also gain information, right? It could, it could have other stuff accumulate with it. And so as information goes from one neuron to the next, we say that there's a weight. There's a number that simply tells us whether, well, to what degree we want to multiply the output of one neuron before it reaches the input of the next. And that's it. That's a neural network. You, you, can, you can write that code and you have yourself a 100% bona fide neural network. Yeah. So we've got neural networks appearing right, left, and center because we also incorporate them into sort of uh, other things. And there's like obviously a lot more, and especially I'm, I'm pointing to your book again because that goes into a lot more detail. But but the idea of a neural network is, again, as you say, it's not as clever as it sounds in one sense, but from a mathematical <laughs> yeah. or other point of view, it is actually super clever, super useful. Um, the, the one that I think most people have been jaw-droppingly impressed with is when we get to uh, GANs, because it's a GAN that allows these things we've seen with style transfers, and it's GANs that have been appearing in a lot of things like real-time live at SIDGRAPH and stuff like that. Uh, and and also, it's the the GAN that seems to be the sort of uh, how can I put this? There's almost a, a mystique around a GAN because, well, I, I might get you to explain again. But the mystique around a GAN is when you try and discuss it in simplistic terms, it sounds like it's an AI engine teaching an AI engine. But but just explain what a a, a generative adversarial network is a GAN because that's the one that I think most people would have been bumping into and impressed with. Sure. So um, I, your, your, your example of an AI teaching an AI, that's basically it. Um, the classic way we talk about GANs, and this comes from the very first 
paper on them. And let's pretend that we're trying to forge money. So we have two players playing a game. We have Alice and Alice works for the government and she's trying to spot forged documents, in this case, money. And we have Bob and Bob is a forger. He wants to make fake money. So they both arrive in this country somewhere and Bob starts turning out forged money. And it's Alice's job to determine for every bill that comes across her desk, whether it's a forgery or it's real. Alice, she looks at these bills, but we give her some real bills too. And she says, this one's real, this one's fake, this one's real, this one's fake. And of course, at this point, it's by accident, but she doesn't really know. Then once she has assigned those labels, so she is, she's made her decisions, we tell her what the real answers were. Anytime she detected a forgery, we tell Bob, you got caught. Bob will keep trying new variations to trick Alice. And gradually, he will start to get better. He will start to occasionally fool Alice. And as Alice gets better and she learns how to spot a real bill from a fake bill, she is able to correctly determine and catch Bob's forgeries. And so back and forth it goes. It's cat and mouse. And together, they get better and better and better. The secret is to doing this so many times until they reach a point where Bob's forgeries are so good, Alice can't decide if they're real or not. And at that point, you can make as much fake currency as you want, or fake faces, or fake voices, or fake whatever it was you trained on. Yeah, and that that idea that it's going to uh, amp up, I mean, I've done it with faces and stuff, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like you get, there's two sides to this, right? Like what you just described, the classic kind of uh, counterfeiter and and cop model effectively of, of uh, a GAN where, you know, you're trying to trick one part of it's trying to trick the other part and it gets better and better and better. But, but all of that is also influenced by the training data. In other words, like the data that that you can feed something. Because when I was doing one with faces, it just was being fed off supermodels or models. So everyone was just a pretty person, right? Yeah. And so I guess there's this kind of concept. It's hard to, you're better to think of like there being a, a solution space sort of defined by the training space. And so when you're trying to go outside that, you're going to fall over more often than not. And so getting the right training data, something I want to discuss with you, in, in, especially in, in our area, getting the right training data can make a huge difference, can't it? I mean, it's very, a very critical part of the exercise. It makes all the difference in the world. Arguably, the training data is the most important thing. There are lots of different networks that you can design that will all pretty much work. But if the training data is not, it's exactly as you said, you say it very well. There's a space or a collection of examples that are the things you're going to learn about. And that's all the system will learn. And it will absolutely know nothing about anything that is outside that space. And so if you train it on models and you show it a normal looking person, it's going to have no idea what that thing is. <laughs> is that a duck? Is that an elephant? Is that a cell phone? Um, because it's never seen one of those. And, and of course, if you're very close to the space, it, it can guess. Um, but the training data is absolutely essential because anything that is not in the training data 
the system is not going to learn. And similarly, you can you can have uh, inherent biases in the training data, like you can have like a lot of images where somebody is looking to the left. Um, I, the, the, I was thinking of an example where somebody was producing training data and they were they were like trying to do it in takes and they decided not to stop the cameras. They just kept the cameras rolling and the person kept on looking to the left to get direction for the next you know yeah, take yeah. effectively. And so when you actually reviewed all the footage. Half the time they were looking to the left because half yeah. the time they were just discussing and getting ready for the next take. And then they turned to face the camera and do the take. And the first crack that the team did with the training data was just to run all of it because it was one continuous take and surely more is better, right? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, that is a weird situation that it just biased the, uh, the information, even though, yes, we know it was a face, we could tell it was moving, looking to one side. From the computer's point of view, it just said, well, there's a lot more of this side than that side. Maybe that's important. Or at least I'm anthropomorphizing because it doesn't think at all. But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Oh, we, we always anthropomorphize you know, what they want and what they think. Um, it, the situation is even more um, extreme than, than I think you were positing. It's not the case that the training data can always be biased. It is the case that the training data always is biased. And the simplest way to think about this is that the training data is finite. You're always leaving out something because there's infinite variation in the world and there's infinite subtlety and differences. So you have to make sure that whatever is being left out doesn't matter to you. And if you're leaving out normal looking people, if you're leaving out people of color, if you're leaving out people with bald heads, if you're leaving out people who wear glasses, then you have just omitted them from anything that the system can do. And this is a real problem because we often don't notice the little things that we're missing until it's too late. We build a system, we train it, and we use it, and something goes wrong sometimes. And it can be very hard for us to figure out why is this not working right? And you go back and you go back and you work and you work and you work, and maybe you're lucky. And you say, oh, we didn't train on anyone who wore glasses. And sometimes you can't find that out. And, and you are forever hampered by the inadequacy of your training data. Yeah, while we're talking about problems, I think there are some interesting problems that are fall in that category with this area. Because like your example just then, like obviously it's a, a bias in the training data that I'm blind to. That's that's a good example. But there are like a lot of things that are sort of not intuitive necessarily with this. I think a good one is how valuable it can be sometimes to have synthetic data, right? To just make your own data because in making it, you can know more about it. Um, a good example was a, a head orientation thing. And they found it was much better to use a 3D head which of course we would say is less realistic, but with a 3D head, they naturally got the, the surface normal coming out of the end of the nose. They knew exactly which direction the right. head was looking. So they already solved a big problem. And so it was actually much better just to produce a bunch of, you know, basically what we would consider pretty cruddy VFX heads, but yet those heads had all this extra information that was just super useful in our, uh, in our supervised learning model. And, and it wasn't intuitive that making your own stuff would be better than using real stuff. Because as a rule of thumb, as a VFX artist, I say, hey, use the real stuff whenever I can. But like, I mean, I, there's got to be a million of these, right? But there's just, it seems like that, that idea of, oh, you know what? We'd be better off making some 
fake imagery up and then using that because we know things about it or because we've already done stuff um, that doesn't doesn't ring true to a normal artist, I don't think. Well, it's I'm really glad you brought that up because it is often tempting to augment your training data with synthetic data for exactly the reasons you're describing. I've got a renderer. I can make any picture I want. I'll make 10,000 pictures and that's what I'll train on. Well, what you're training on is something that has all of the idiosyncrasies, all the flaws, all the little errors in your renderer. If you then show it photographs, your system is not well prepared to deal with a photograph unless your renderer really captures every single last detail of the real world, which it probably doesn't. Synthetic data is, I think of it like radioactive material. It can be very useful when used the right way and with extreme caution. But if you just crank up a bunch of synthetic data and you train your system with it and you think, ah, oh, yeah, now my system's trained. No, it, that is gonna bite you um, because your training data or your synthetic data probably does not encompass everything because there were things that escaped your notice. You didn't put it in. And because it's synthetic, the only things that are there, the only things that are there are the things you put in, as opposed to a photograph of the natural world where everything is taken care of because it is you know, a real tree, as opposed to your synthetic tree, which has only four different kinds of leaves that are instanced 10,000 times. Well, the system's going to notice that there's only four different kinds of leaves. Well, yeah. Uh, but then there's, okay, so there's another problem that's related to this. And remember, you gave an example of this. I think it was with uh, poodles and tails and, and stuff. But anyway, it was that you have uh, a bunch of training data. It is of dogs. You are training on dogs. But it just so happened that all the dog breeds that you were feeding in, a particular dog breed happened to be sitting on a sofa. Uh, I think the poodles were sitting on sofas, I think was the example you gave, something like that. I, I, I apologize for, for misrepresenting your own story. But <laughs> okay. the point was the, you're feeding in you know, real-world examples of these dogs, which are just happened you didn't notice to be on sofas. And, of course, it got very good at identifying poodles uh, by sofas, not by anything to do with the dog, that makes sense. Yeah, that's actually a different phenomenon. It's related yeah. to the, the, the bias in uh, the training data and the problems with synthetic data. But what you're referring to is a problem that is called overfitting. Um, a famous example of overfitting comes from um, early days of machine learning and deep learning, where uh, the, there was a meeting at the army. And, and this sounds apocryphal, but I actually found someone who said, I was there and I was the one who did this. I was the one who said that. Oh, at meeting, so, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so somebody stood up and said, I have a system. And this was well before you know the systems of today. I have a system that can tell you, looking at a picture of a group of trees, whether there's a tank, a camouflaged tank, hiding inside the group of trees or not. Well, clearly that would be very important for somebody in, in you know, trying to run away from the tanks as any intelligent person would. Um, so he shows a bunch of slides and he said, this is, there's a tank in the trees. And the system said, there is. Next slide, there is no tank. The system said, there is no tank. And he goes through all the slides and he says, well, you know, this system got it right every single time. And then someone in the back of the room stood up and said, are you aware 
all of the pictures you took of the trees without a tank were taken on a cloudy day. And all the pictures where you had a tank hiding in the trees was on a sunny day. So all your fancy algorithm is doing is looking at the top of the picture and determining whether it's gray or blue. Excellent. and the guy was crestfallen. And in fact, that's all the system was doing. It, it, it's called overfitting because it is over, overly learning or fitting the data it's been shown. And it's doing just what you asked it to do. You're saying, tell me the difference between these two things. And it said, well, there are details I can exploit in the data you've given me that you didn't notice, but I can learn. And... That's a great example. Uh, That is really a great example. The one I use when I'm talking to people is a trick I used to do when I was at uh, college, which was saying that I had such a highly uh, attuned sense of taste that I could pick the difference between Pepsi and Coke. And the way I did it is I would would be blindfolded and I would give me uh, Pepsi and and they would give me Coke and I would 100% pick which one was Pepsi and which one was Coke. And no matter what they did, I could pick it. And the reason was I pulled the Coke out of the fridge (laughs) and the Pepsi was from the table. And so one was cold and one wasn't, and I couldn't tell any difference. But but that's a classic example. I was getting it 100% right. I just wasn't using anything to do with taste, uh, which is, of course, the assumption of what they were they were doing uh, to prove the difference. Um, yeah. Beautiful. And, yeah, that's exactly it. But I think I think this is this is why uh, well I like why I like your book, but also like why I like this area so much because it, it is um, a combination of understanding what's going on kind of mathematically and then defeating your own ego or your own sensory system uh, to to imagine that you know what's going on. I know that we talk sometimes about black boxes and you can't know what's going on inside the black box. I feel like that's that's a that's sort of true, but also it's a bit of a get out of jail free card that you can just claim, well, nobody understands any of this stuff and it can do anything. And that's not true. Uh, I mean, there are black box solutions where, um, I'll give you the example of like pricing cars, right? Where basically you kind of set up a what I would call a scaffolding for it solving the problem. And then you yeah. just say, just run it a bazillion times. And I've got some training data here and see if you get it better or worse playing with a bunch of variables and yeah. I've got, let's say six variables. And you know what? I don't care what you do. Just come back with the best combination of variables to work out what the predictor new car price is going to be. And you can try finding playing with the length of the wheelbase, or you can find playing with the, you know, the number of cylinders, or you can try playing with whether or not it's got a good stereo system. I don't care. Here's the data of cars. I'm going to give you a new one. You predict to me how much it's going to cost. And of course, I don't know exactly like what it did in terms of playing with those variables, but I know what the problem is. I know that there were some variables. I know that they played with the variables. It's not a, a deep learning neural network with you know clever um, backpropagation and stuff. It's just playing with the scaffolding that I set up but as you said before, it plays with it a bazillion times. Well, I'm just having a cup of coffee. And so by the time I come back, whenever, uh, it's got the sort of not necessarily a provable optimum solution, because there may be some solution out there and I can't prove that I've got the best one. But hey, it's way better than where I started. And, you know, there you go. But of course, I anthropomorphize that it gained some insight into automotive pricing, <laughs> which of course it didn't. Yeah. Right. No, it has absolutely no understanding. Um, yeah. 
the, the way I like to look at this sometimes is imagine, imagine that you're a loan officer at a bank and it's your job to approve or not approve loans. And so, you know, people come in, they fill in the form, they hand you the form, you, you say yes or no. And the way you do it is there's a deep learning system that's been developed and you feed, you know, you feed the form into the scanner and back comes yes or no. But it's one of these explainable systems where people have worked hard to have the machine tell you basically to unravel the black box and, and explain its reasoning, which you can do. You can build algorithms that are able to do this. So someone comes in, they fill out the form, they hand it to you. You stick it in the machine and it says, no. And the person says, well, why do you turn down my loan request? You push the big button that says, explain it. And the outcome's a piece of paper. And the computer says, well, you know, people who come into the bank between 2 and 2.30 on Wednesdays wearing blue suits with brown socks who fill out the form using a blue pen and they write capital letters at the start of each word, but they also sometimes capitalize the letter E those people don't pay back their loans statistically. And that's why I, de I declined your loan. Well, those reasons are awful. <laughs> they're the wrong reasons, but they're the reasons that the system learned because statistically they worked out on the training data. And that's the danger. That's why I said the training data is so enormously important because the system will learn because of overfitting these little idiosyncrasies that let it do what we want. I'm sorry, they let it do what we asked for, not what we want. That's kind of like correlation and causality, isn't it, really? I mean, conceptually, like it's, it's finding, I mean, it, it isn't the same, obviously, it's a completely different concept, but it's like it's finding something that is statistically true. It is actually true that in the same way that you can find out that it is, there is a, you know, good, pattern match between movies made by certain actors and and childhood deaths in swimming pools right yeah, um right it's a false <laughs> it's a false causality it is pure yeah. correlation and yeah. nothing else and and yes there's actually a lovely website you can go to i forget its name is experious correlations um and they just have hundreds of um records of data over time and you just say give me a spurious correlation and it just looks for two graphs that match they go yep the consumption of butter is innately tied to how quickly you go through shoes yeah yeah and <laughs> and uh it's yeah it's but then that being said right the other end of the spectrum just to, to so we've been sort of like poo-pooing stuff but like let's quickly discuss some of the great things we've seen like you can draw a pencilish kind of sketch of a landscape and it can use machine learning and deep learning to basically produce a plausible picture of what that landscape may have looked like or would look like as a, effectively like a matte painting, you know, and you say, oh, well, I do a rough bubbly shape here. And he goes, oh, cloud up in the sky. Sure. Yeah. And then puts a nimbus cloud in there, which you go, oh my God, that looks really good. That looks now it's not an actual part of the coastline, but what a jump in what seems to be seconds from crappy pencil drawing to what you know would have taken a photoshop artist several hours to do and and uh style transfer that's another one that's a cracker isn't it i mean that's just really a super useful thing to, to visual effects artists yeah it's great and it's it's 
all statistics, right? There's no understanding. When you do style transfer, it doesn't know, oh, you're going from cartoon to Van Gogh. And so I'll make sure the brush strokes have multiple colors on them and you know, we'll dab the paint in a particular way. It's, it's just raw statistics. And the, the beauty of the basic style transfer algorithm is that they found a way <laughs> to exploit the statistics in an input image and the statistics of a collection of images by, let's say, some artist, and then correlate them and say, okay, I have an edge. I know what that artist did with edges. But of course, it doesn't do that. It says, oh, statistically, this group of yeah. pixels has these properties, and therefore, I will go to a corresponding group of pixels in the artist's hand with, with similar statistics and replace them. Trying to ask somebody to explain deep learning without using anthropomorphization is like asking someone to describe a spiral staircase while sitting on their hands. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yes, it should yes. be possible, but it's not. Um, and yeah, then and people yeah. can't see, but we're waving our hands all yeah, over we're the place. Our place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the other one, of course, I love because uh, I do a lot of uh, digital human research is just being able to do what some people would call a deep fake. I call it neural rendering, but um, being able to take uh, in say a case of a stuntman and replace their face, but not just replace their face, but produce a plausible version of what the real actor's face would have looked like in that lighting setup with that stunt actor's expression uh, at that particular camera angle. Like that's an astonishing feat of useful maths. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a very nice way of putting it. It's basically piling statistics on top of statistics. It's, it's saying I, I have, I have one kind of transformation that I can do on the input face, and then I can transform it again and transform it again. And by moving it from the space of the face images of the original actor to the space of the face images of the target actor in stages, you can say, ah, that, that face in the performance is that face in the target actor. And it's, it's just crushing the numbers. Um, there's no understanding. It doesn't know that it's moving eyes to eyes and nose to nose. It's just taking these statistical representations and going, this one is like that one. And so it, it, you're exactly right. It's just crushing numbers. It is, of course, the case also that unlike many other things, we have this, uh, this heavy duty prep time with what seems to be astonishingly fast runtime, right? Like, in other words, training you know, we've set up training stuff where it's been days and yet it'll yeah. run in real time. Um, that's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Right? Like just how that has, that, that works out. It's quite different to like visual effects normally like, well, you know, do the stuff and then I'll take a, a long time to render it at the end. Yeah, and yeah, this yeah. is like, well, I'm taking a long time to work out what the heck you're talking about. And then I can do it really quickly. <laughs> well, and, and that's what makes self-driving cars work. They can spend days and days and days and days training up a neural network, and then it can run at 30 or 60 frames a second and, and navigate your car through city streets safely. Yeah, which, which uh, has lots of amazing uh, applications. I was talking to a company the other day who are looking at doing that kind of style transfer to Playblast coming out of Maya. And so they're saying, well, look, you know, the animator is working with this grayscale uh, face and, you know, obviously they want to tweak it and stuff, but it's too hard to render that as a high quality photoreal image at the point at which the artist is just doing the play blast sort of crappy grayscale version of the face. 
But what if we could get a real-time, uh, you know, face replacement happening? So the actual final version of what that actor is going to look like doesn't get rendered through a render man, you know, kind of Arnold renderer. It just says, oh, I know how to turn gray space faces. I, I say spaces because I mean like it's a training space into final looking quality faces as a inferred, or I think you said hallucinated version keep going, you know, keep going and you can do the final render later. But for now, I'll just give you a pretty good approximation of what that looks like. So you've got an idea. And I mean, that's just to me, jaw droppingly useful. I mean, it's not quite there yet because it's super real time. Uh, and of course you need to have enough training data, a couple of other constraints, but like, there's a lot of applications at all the points in the pipeline for VFX that I could see this stuff appearing. You must, you must find it a, a very broad subject in that respect. Yeah, almost anywhere that you're going to spend a lot of time working on something, you can you can come up with an okay uh, previs, if you will, of how yeah. that is going to look when you're done. Going back to keying, we talked about before, doing a really good key, yeah, that can be very hard, and you have to tune it just right. But if you just need a quick and dirty preview of how that character is going to look against a background. And by golly, you want the shadows to be right and you want the character to be reflected in the glass properly. Yeah, you know, we can give you a quick and dirty preview of that. It, it won't match the final, but you'll get a very good sense of what you're working with and where you're going. Actually, one of the biggest success stories in, in this whole area, and I think one of the most impactful uh, things we saw was the ability to take a fairly crappy ray tracing solution and turn it into a spectacularly good ray tracing solution to take what was pretty much a noisy solution yeah. and make it uh, better. And again, not just like 10% better, but like an order of magnitude better. Yeah. Denoising is fantastic. And it's, it's basically doing the same thing. It's saying from the sparse information I have from the statistics I can draw from the sparse rendering or the the incomplete rendering or the uh, rendering that hasn't been carried out all the way. Maybe every pixel has a color, but it's not quite the right color. And it can say, well, for this studio or for this film, I know what frames ought to look like. They have these statistics. And so I just match the statistics in the noisy image to the statistics in a final image. And boom. And yeah, it's like magic. It's amazing how good these things work and how much faster they can make things go. Years ago, when I was, I mean, literally years ago, I saw uh, some early work that was being done with robotics where they were, this is a weird story, but stay with me, Andrew, because I'm going to get there. <laughs> um, they were showing like, oh, well, they want to have uh, a robot spray paint or metal chair. So imagine a metal chair hanging on a hook and a guy standing there was a guy with a, uh, you know, professional spray gear and he would spray this chair. And the theory was that once they taught the machine how to spray the chair, the robot would repeat identically his hand movements uh, with now a robot arm. And then now, voila, you've got a robot spraying a, a chair and you know that's great, right? We, you don't have to show the guy to record it, play it back. Of course yep. it didn't work um, because there were too many variables that meant that it just didn't adjust for anything and there was no right. quality control and no blah, blah, blah. So a failure of what we might call the early days of expert systems of trying to sort of record and, 
and have some kind of branching algorithm. Well, if the chair is facing me, I do it this way. And if it's chairs facing me that way, I do it another way. Um, and they, they are just too, um, they branch too much. They have too combinatorial, uh, you know, uh, explosion to be able to be, to be viable. But that being said now today, um, and, and I was always sort of struck by that. Like, I really wish that would work because that would be a really good thing if it did. Now I'm seeing a bunch of new uh, deep learning approaches where they're actually saying, well, some of the stuff we've talked about, very much statistical models with stuff fed in, but some of it could be, we do actually observe how an artist addresses a problem. And then if we had enough artists and enough problems, we could actually get a machine learning solution that is basically mimicking artistry adjustments. That's probably the best way to put it. Not pure art, you understand. I'm not talking about like painting a Van Gogh, but I mean like if I am, for example, adjusting a picture to make it match in terms of mats and edges and a bunch of other stuff, if I had a range of things that artists were doing there, um, do, you, do you see that as being a productive area moving forward? Yeah, but it's not, it's not really different than what we've had. Um, what, what, what you're talking about is learning a process as opposed to simply learning the result. Um, but in fact, what you're doing is learning the result many little times where each, each step in the process is just, well, what statistical change do I make? You say, oh, you increase the contrast a little bit, done. Oh, now you increase the brightness, done or not, or you know, by how much. So you're learning a process, but you're learning the process by many tiny little incremental steps, each of which fit the classical paradigm. Um, one place where this doesn't work out quite so well is a, a third field of uh, deep learning called reinforcement learning, where, where basically it's trial and error. So, uh, the machine tries lots of things and you tell it, it's like a game of hot and cold. Each time it tries something, you say, you're getting hotter. This is all, I'll do more of that. Or you're getting colder. Okay, I'll do less of that. Um, and this has led to some very funny results. When, like like there are, there's, there's blooper reels of people trying to teach robots to walk. And so they would say, well, you know, the goal is to get from the start point to the finish point in the smallest number of steps. And you start with a body. You say, okay, we're going to, you can change the shape of your body and you can change the angles at which you move your limbs so that you get from the start to the end. And, you know, the idea was that the thing would learn to get, have long legs and it would learn to balance and it would step, step, step. And in fact, what it does is it just grows enormously long legs. So it's incredibly tall and then it just falls over. And so it crosses the finish line in zero steps. Success. <laughs> and there are dozens of these answers that allow you to satisfy the problem perfectly well and obey all of its constraints. But it's not yeah. the answer that people wanted you to come up with. Yeah, and computers no, are marvelous at this, at finding how to do what you want, but not the way you want. Yeah. But I think getting back to that very previous example of the spray painting, what is beautiful is also that it does copy things that we don't, that aren't clearly the primary objective, but they're all the nuances that tend to add an authenticity to the plausibility of often the digital human solutions that some of these systems come up with, right? So like if you have a bunch of mocap actors and you scan them and record their data and stuff, and you know, obviously got walk cycles and all the other things, but every once in a while, mm -hmm. you'll get somebody who hitches up their pants because 
the actual yeah. mocap actor hitched up his pants, right? Which is not what you would direct, not what you would ask it to do. But you don't want all of your massive crowd of warriors to hitch <laughs> up their pants. But the odd guy who's pulling up his pants a little actually adds to the kind of overall sense of the the what would we call that? The hallucinated humanity of the solution. Um, and so or, those or these statistical variants, if you're more nerdy. <laughs> but I wanted to, if I could, just uh, point to the fact that while we've been talking about visual effects and like these algorithms, a lot of the, a lot of the, what I'm going to call clever, interesting stuff that's happening with deep learning in visual effects, is producing digital humans and uh, tools and stuff that are. Um, that you've already alluded to that are appearing in like iPhones as better ways of doing photography or being able to relight pictures. Um, but it goes a lot further than that. Like there are these same core technologies that companies like Weta have pioneered over the years that they've been going that are now helping. Uh, it's one company I've come across today. They're producing um, digital humans that can automatically do sign language of what somebody is saying. Mm -hmm. So in the case of, an important COVID announcement, they can produce uh, for that person that is unable to lip read a, uh, you know, a plausible uh, and useful, uh, that's important, um, an accurate <clears throat> model of somebody sign languaging. And mm -hmm. I think these are just wonderful indications that like a lot of this technology is very visual, very, uh, and, and required to be at very high fidelity for visual effects. But there's a whole world of other, I think, secondary applications that are going to benefit from this work, both that companies like Weta are doing, just the general field. And you, know, you must be somewhat satisfied by that. I'm satisfied and profoundly bothered. Oh, really? Um, yes. The, the satisfaction is the sort of thing you described. There are many wonderful life-enhancing applications of these technologies. Um, you can learn dog behavior by looking at how synthetic dogs move and behave. Um, but as these images and animations and videos are of, and sound and recordings are of increasingly high quality, they will become increasingly indistinguishable from reality, which is, of course, the, the point of the effects work. But as we get better and better at it, it, basically, we have the Photoshop effect. It becomes easier to do and more widespread and more people can do it. My concern is that this brings about the end of evidence. When you go into a court of law right now and somebody says, you know, I, I saw that person do this thing. Um, you say, well, you saw it. No, I have video. And of course, lots of things are decided because, oh, we have video of that happening. Well, okay, but hang on, let me let me challenge you on that point because what yeah. is the difference between that and coming in and saying I have a photo of him doing that? I have a photo no of, of Mike holding the gun. But, yeah, no, that's exactly. But yeah. the courts, but the courts have adapted. I'm not look. I'm not saying that your your ethical concerns aren't important, but I will say that society does adapt, and we adapted to know that you can't trust something because it could have been photoshopped, and that right. became you know like a term photoshopped, right? And and implied almost in that term is somebody changed reality to make it look like it was real. When we say Photoshop, right. we don't imply they turned it into a, a cartoon. We imply that they made a photorealistic kind of version that was indistinguishable notionally. Yes. Would I not expect society to adapt to video in the same way? 
Well, there's different levels of adaptation. I'm concerned with adaptation in the courts. So if I'm in a courtroom and I look at a photograph and I can't trust it because I don't know if it's Photoshopped or not, then we have lost the ability to rely on photographic evidence. We now have to rely on other forms of evidence. When we can't trust photographs or video or audio, what are we left with? We're left with what people say, and that devolves into the loudest person in the room or the richest person in the room or the person with the most persuasive manner. Uh, we, we go back to an early feudal time when courts of law were, were re, worked on the basis of, you know, who's, who's got the most clout in this conversation? I'm, I'm concerned that when we lose reliance on objective reality in these media forms, and we will lose it in other media forms as well. You know, have fake fingerprints and whatever it is you choose to identify, we will compromise. Then you lose an important part of the social structure that allows us to hold people responsible for their actions. So that's well, what worries me. I, I, I respect your opinion in that area, though I feel like that would be it of its own uh worthy of its own lengthy discussion. <laughs> I think sure. in finishing up, I don't think I can, uh, I can do that justice other than to say, uh, ask you this one question. Do you believe that technology is inherently good or evil or just using it makes it so? Yeah, this is an ancient question, of course. Um, it's using makes it so, but, but I also believe that technologies have agendas. Um, guns to anthropomorphize, guns want to shoot bullets. That's what they're for. That's their purpose. And that purpose manifests itself in how it's used, either in a threatening manner, so, whether it's defensive or offensive. Yeah, I, I, I understand where you're going with that. I'm not, but a counter point of view would be uh, something is what I use it for. So if I had, uh, your incredibly good book and used it to only keep the door open, which would be A, a tragedy and B, offensive. <laughs> um, but at that point, it isn't a book, it's a doorstop. It's because what I used it for is what it is, right? And so if I had an object that you didn't know what it was, you might say, what is that? And what you're asking is, what is it used for? Because once you contextualize it to a use, I can tell you what it is. And if you don't know how it's used, you don't know what it is. So my thing is, what this technology is, is at least strongly what it's used for. And so I definitely fall in the camp of uh, something is not inherently good or evil. You're implying that it in inherently wants to be used for something. Uh, and and it's and it's in it's in its wanting to be used for something. It's increasing its likelihood to be used for it. I think would be the the inference, wouldn't it? Yeah, right. And so perhaps we can agree on a middle ground, which is that that you know objects can in fact be used in in a multiplicity of ways. So book can be a, a doorstop. It can be a step ladder. <laughs> Books can be many things, um, but they can't be other things. They can't be birds. Then they can't be oceans. 
and they can't be memories of that afternoon in France. So there are, there's a, a realm of things that they can be, and there's a realm of actions that they can take. And let me suggest that there may be, those may not be evenly distributed when looked at from a, from a specific ethical perspective. You may look at the things that they think can do from a particular ethical point of view and say, huh, the good options vastly outnumber the bad or vice versa, or maybe it's on the fence, but it's a tremendously good thing. Does that outweigh all the 50 tiny bad things? And, and I would use the point of, of drugs. There are drugs that you know can be and are used for good that also uh, in the wrong dosages to the wrong people at the wrong time. But we are getting very philosophical here very quickly. And I, <laughs> I really, really need to, to thank you very much for taking time to talk to me. I, I, uh, I've had fun. Thank you, Andrew. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, this, this was great. You're a wonderful conversationalist. Thank you. Well, it's very, very kind of you. But uh, in fact, you're the authority. If people are interested in your book, which we've referred to a few times, um, it's pretty easy to find because it's called Deep Learning, A Visual Approach. Um, and, uh, well, I got mine off Amazon, so I presume it's in all good bookstores, but including the fine Amazon organization. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> the, the finer the bookstore, the more likely they will carry my book. Um, yes. But it is certainly available uh, um, at all of your favorite online outlets as well. And I, I did like the fact that in addition to having lots of diagrams and lots of good examples uh, of what you're discussing, it, as it blazingly says on the front cover, it's all in color. So it's actually easy to understand. So let me just mention two things about color. So there is a, there is a colored language in the book. Uh, there is a specific reuse of specific colors in specific contexts. And I hope that even if it's very subtle and it's you know below active perception, as you work your way through the book, you will begin to make that association and say, oh, it's this green thing. It, it's probably like the other green things. And that's no accident. They are that way. And the other thing is that the colors that I chose, I used a um, preview tool for people who have any kind of color deficiency or color blindness. Oh, there are three dominant kinds of color blindness. And so I very carefully chose the colors so that they would be legible to someone with a color deficiency. And finally on color, whenever possible, I also use a shape cue. So if I want to distinguish two things, there's the red ones and the green ones, the red ones will be circles, the green ones will be triangles. So I tried to make it very easy to, um, to get the most out of the book, even if you are not color normal. But you, you, I, you've, you've channeled your inner graphic designer and your inner colorist. <laughs> I just want to thank Andrew again so much for taking time to talk to us. I, I have to say, I really enjoy these series of discussion podcasts where we're just exploring issues. Well, on behalf of John Montgomery and myself, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any ideas for future topics and stuff that you'd like to hear us discussing, please uh, just send us a line or ping us. But until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much. See you. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. 
This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.